You are listening to Rio Bravo Q Week podcast, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program in Bakersfield, California, a UCLA-affiliated program sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. This podcast was created for educational purposes only. Visit your primary care provider for additional medical advice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Rio Bravo Q Week. And uh, today is a special day because we are very close to Christmas. And I'm very happy with this season. I, I said in every episode, but it's my favorite time of the year. Uh, so and today I have a medical student. She's a fourth year medical student. And I'm going to give her the chance to introduce herself. Hello, Caitlin. Hi, my name is Caitlin Roy Ross. I'm a fourth year medical student at Ross University School of Medicine. And I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And, and uh, do you have any plans for Christmas? I'm actually going to Hawaii. Oh, a uh, Hawaiian, uh, Hawaiian Christmas. That sounds great. So today we're going to be talking about uh, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, which uh, we say for short, we say SBP. So, and Caitlin has prepared this topic because we were very low in our census in, in, in the hospital. Not, not right now. Right now you have a lot of patients. A lot. Okay. But at that time we were looking for uh, some topics to talk about and and Caitlin, she prepared this topic and now we're going to record it. So let's talk about SVP, Caitlin. So give us a definition. So SVP is an ascitic fluid infection with no obvious surgically treatable intra-abdominal source, such as a bowel perforation, abscess, or perforated ulcer. It's commonly seen in patients with cirrhosis and ascites. Patients with SBP may have symptoms of fever, abdominal pain, abdominal tenderness, altered mental status, and hypotension. Yeah, and SBP should be high on our list of differentials when we have a patient who is, who is a liver disease patient and has abdominal pain and any of these symptoms that you mentioned, we have to think about SBP. And SBP, as you mentioned, is not a secondary bacterial peritonitis which is caused by an abscess, a perforation, or a pancreatitis. We're talking about patients with no obvious reasons to have uh, peritonitis, but they have it. So, um, and then we can talk about the most common pathogens. So, the most common pathogens, about 75% of the time, are from gram-negative aerobic organisms. Klebsiella pneumoniae accounts for 50% of the cases. Gram-positive aerobic bacteria, such as streptococcus pneumonia or Viridans group streptococcus, account for the remaining causes. That's interesting because we're always thinking gram-negative because it's so close to the intestines, right? So to the GI tract, but you can, you can see also gram-positive. But some reports say that E. coli is the most common cause of SVP. And random information here that I found is that in Korea, there is a bacteria that causes a lot of SVPs in the summer. And the name of the bacteria is Oromonas hydrophila. Very interesting. Yeah. So to diagnose SVP, a paracentesis should be performed to analyze the acidic fluid prior to treating the patient with antibiotics. The acidic fluid should be analyzed for the following. Polymorphonuclear cell count, PMN, greater than or equal to 250 cells per cubic millimeter. Aerobic and anaerobic cultures, serum ascites albumin gradient, 
which you can calculate by subtracting acidic albumin from serum albumin. This measures portal pressure. If the gradient is greater than 1.1, portal hypertension is present. SBP is likely. Common causes, cirrhosis, heart failure, large liver malignancy, alcoholic hepatitis, and portal vein thrombosis. If the gradient is less than 1.1, portal hypertension is not present and SBP is less likely. More likely causes are peritoneal carcinomatosis or tuberculosis, pancreatitis, and nephrotic syndrome. Okay, let's make an let's do an exercise here. Let's say that your serum albumin or albumin is four, and then you have the acidic fluid is one. Okay, so that's four minus no three. I wanted I wanted it to be three. So four minus three is one. So the gradient is less than one point one, right? Right. Okay, so SPP is less likely. Less likely. Okay, so uh, I, you know, I, I, I always have to think about this because when the protein concentration in the acidic fluid is less than one, there is a low concentration of opsonins, which um, opsonins, but if you don't remember it from medical school, is proteins that bind to bacteria to induce phagocytosis, and patients are at high risk for SPP when the protein is low because these opsonins are low. So the concentration of protein in the peritoneal fluid does not change during SPP. So it's still low. That's why the gradient is, is more than 1.1 because you have more protein in the serum right, than in the acidic fluid. So that's why patients are at high risk for um, not only SPP, but also secondary bacterial peritonitis too. Yeah, that's interesting. So we can also analyze the acidic fluid for glucose. It will be greater than 50 milligrams per deciliter in SBP. Lactate dehydrogenase will be 43 plus or minus 20. And if amylase is increased in the acidic fluid, then we can think of pancreatitis or gut perforation. Additionally, if bilirubin is increased in the acidic fluid greater than serum bilirubin or greater than 6 milligrams, this suggests a gallbladder perforation. Yeah. So I have to make sure that I clarify myself because I um you know our listeners are not seeing what I'm seeing right now. So if the protein concentration is high in the peritoneal fluid that you are obtaining in a paracentesis, if it's high, you're thinking about secondary, secondary peritonitis, right? Right. If it's low, you are thinking about spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Yep. Okay, so well, we diagnosed the patient with SVP, and now we're going to treat the patient. So let's talk about the, the, the treatment of SVP. So the treatment for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis is broad-spectrum antibiotics. Empiric treatment is indicated if a patient with ascites has any of the following. A temperature greater than 100 degrees Fahrenheit, abdominal pain or tenderness, altered mental status, and PMN in the acidic fluid greater than 250. But if there is bacteria in acidic fluid, start antibiotics stat. And also alcoholic-induced hepatitis. So in any of those cases, you start treatment, even though you don't have the exact uh, pathogen, you don't have any isolate yet, but you're going to start treatment anyways. So, um, so an important topic to talk about is beta blockers. Yeah. Patients on beta blockers should have them permanently discontinued prior to treatment for SBP as beta blockers are associated with worse outcomes, 
In one study, patients on beta blockers had a 58 in, 58% increase in mortality compared to patients not treated with beta blockers. Beta blockers were also associated with higher rates of hepatorenal syndrome and longer lengths of hospital stay. Yeah, that's great information. So lots of patients are on beta blockers, right? If they are on beta blockers and they have ASVP, we should stop the beta blocker. Yes. So the third generation cephalosporin, cefotaxim, and ceftriaxin, they are the first line of treatment, right? Right. Um, so for cephalosporin, cefotaxim, you give two grams IV, Q8 hours, which is preferred, or ceftriaxone, two grams per day. Thinking about ceftriaxone is great. It's only once a day, very convenient for the patient, and the nurses are going to love you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Second-line treatment are carbapenems. Th these are usually reserved for patients with severe disease and critical illness. For a third line, we have fluoroquinolones, such as ciprofloxacin, 400 milligrams, IV, BID to patients with normal renal function. Importantly, patients should not receive this treatment if they have already been taking it prophylactically. Yeah, and the treatment, it doesn't have to last too long. Five days is usually enough, but we have to, to stop it when we have some criteria, right? So when do we stop the treatment? So if the PMN count is less than 250, we can stop antibiotic treatment. So that means that after five days, you do another paracentesis. You check the PMN. So if it's less than 250, then stop the antibiotic. Right. If PMN is greater than 250 or greater than our pre-treatment PMN count, we must look for a surgical source of infection. So it's time to call surgery. Yep. <laughs> if PMN is greater than 250 but less than pre-treatment value, we continue the antibiotics for 48 more hours and then repeat paracentesis. An important note is that in general, a cytic fluid PMN count should be reduced by at least 25% after 48 hours of antibiotic therapy. So that's how we know, like we can recheck, you know, the PMN in five days, or you can even check it, like you said, in two days, in 48 hours to see if the, if the PMN is decreasing right. by at least 25%. So you know that your medication is working and the secondary peritonitis is less likely. Exactly. So uh, renal failure is the major cause of death in patients with SVP. What can we do in those cases? Yes, yeah, so renal failure actually develops in 30 to 40% of patients with SVP. We can decrease this risk by administering IV albumin. IV albumin should be given when the creatinine is greater than 1 milligram per deciliter, the blood urea nitrogen is greater than 30 milligrams per deciliter, or if the total bilirubin is greater than 4 milligrams per deciliter. Treatment with octreotide or midodrine is helpful if renal failure develops. So albumin, albumin, octreotide, and midodrine. So that sounds like a heparorenal syndrome treatment. Yes. Well, prevention is key in primary care since this podcast is, is uh, for primary care providers. So let's talk about prevention of SVP. Antibiotic prophylaxis can be given to patients with risk factors for SBP. Some risk factors include prior history of SBP, variceal hemorrhage, or an ascites fluid protein concentration of less than 1 gram per deciliter. And we mentioned that protein concentration less than 1 gram is a high risk for SBP because you have decreased opsonins. And so let's talk about other measures that we can do uh, for uh, for prevention. Right. So like we said, early diagnosis and treatment of infections to prevent bacteremia is very important. 
So and we're talking about any infections. The patient has a pneumonia, patient has a strep throat, patient has a UTI. So we have to treat those infections because we know that the uh, bacteria can go easily to the peritoneal cavity and cause the SVP. So treat any infections in patients with liver disease. Additionally, diuretic therapy can be used. Of course, diuretic therapy increases the concentration of protein in the peritoneal fluid. And we talked about proteins and opsonins. So you have more opsonins, you have more protection in the peritoneal fluid. So that's why patients with liver disease, they should be treated with diuretics. Additionally, restriction of PPIs is also helpful in preventing SBP. Yeah, uh, we were talking about that, that any patient before, you know, when PPIs were discovered and they were the big thing for prevention of ulcers and peptic ulcer disease, especially on patients who, who were hospitalized. So every, every patient was put on PPI. But then over time, people discovered that PPI decreased the natural barrier for infections because we have a, a higher um, stomach. Basically, the, the gastric um, juice is uh, more uh, alkalinic. So when that happens, the bacteria can survive and they can penetrate easily the GI tract or more easily. So that's why you have to restrict PPIs in patients with liver disease to prevent SVPs. So use PPIs only if it's necessary, but if it's not necessary, then don't use them. Very interesting. So prophylaxis with antibiotics is indicated for the following patients. Patients with cirrhosis who are hospitalized for reasons other than SBP or GI bleeding. We treat them with oral Bactrim, one double-strength tablet daily with discontinuation of the drug at discharge. Mm -hmm. Okay, Bactrim is our good friend. Yes. Patients with a history of one or more SBP episodes and patients with low protein ascites, along with either renal or liver failure, also get our good friend Bactrim, one double strength tablet daily. Alternatively, we can use ciprofloxacin, 500 milligrams per day. Okay. And then the number three are those patients with advanced cirrhosis and GI bleeding. In those patients, you use ceftriaxone, one gram IV daily and switch to oral back trim once the bleeding has stopped and the patient is stable. So those are the three patients that you're going to use prophylaxis on. So the patients with cirrhosis who are hospitalized for any reasons, or even if they have GI bleeding, patients with a history of one or more SVP episodes, and they have a low protein in the acidic, acidic fluid, and then the patients with advanced cirrhosis and GI bleeding right? Yes. So those are the three patients that we should use prophylaxis on. And um, well, I think we have covered most of the basic information for SVP. So thank you so much, Caitlin, for uh, giving us this information. And um, do you have any final words for us? I hope everybody has a great Christmas. Yeah, I hope so too. And thank you so much, guys, for listening to us and tune in next week. conclude our episode number 123, Spontaneous Bacterial Peritonitis. Let's not hesitate in the diagnosis of SBP in patients with cirrhosis who present with typical symptoms. The analysis of peritoneal fluid is key in the diagnosis and management of SBP. Remember that peritoneal fluid with PMN above 250 and low protein is highly suggestive of SBP. So start empiric antibiotics promptly. This week, we thank Hector Ariasa, Caitlin Broy-Ross, 
and Gagan Kuner. Audio edition by Adrian Silva. Even without trying, every night you go to bed a little wiser. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week podcast. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at riobravoqweek at clinicasierravista.org or visit our website, riobravofmrp.org slash qweek. See you next week. Bye.